Good morning. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. So many of you may know this. Uh, I got married recently, uh, 100 days ago, and uh, yeah, I can still count days. And um, it was great. Uh, before we got married, uh, one of the things we did is we sent out uh, save the dates. So a save the date, we sent out electronically, but it just says, hey, we're planning on getting married on this day. Um, at this place, if you could just kind of mark that off on your calendar and not make other plans. And uh, then as the wedding got a little closer, uh, we sent out uh, paper invitations. They're very nice. And we said, hey, please come to our wedding. We'd love to have you there. Uh, we value you. And, uh, yeah, and, and some of you in here uh, I got to invite. I would love to have invited all of you, but I, we had a limited number. Well, we're going to look at a, a wedding feast today and... Uh, the invitation there is going to be unlimited. But yeah, so if you have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 22, I'll begin reading in verse 1. And uh, just before this, our second reading was Matthew 21. And uh, that's what Ben read for our second reading. And that section is where the, uh, the religious leaders are challenging Jesus. And so this is in that same vein. It's continuing on. Um, if we could redo chapter divisions, I assure you the chapter would not end where it did. 21 would not end. So, reading in verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite, call, to the wedding feast, as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot. And cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Back to the top there. Again, Jesus continued. He spoke to them in parables. Uh, I like this word parable. This is the third of three consecutive parables. I like this word parable um, in large part because... uh, I'm a math teacher, and I think some of you know that, but I, I teach math, and the word parable, it comes from the same word as the word parabola, parable, parabola. And a parabola is this, this kind of U-shaped thing. It's a, it's a conic section, if you will. Anyways, it's like a U-shaped thing. And the point is that you move around, but the parabola, it's moving around a particular spot. It's moving around a focus point. So this big U-shape moves around a single focus point. It will examine it, essentially, from multiple areas, and that's what a parable does. A parable has a single focus point, almost always, has a single focus point, and it just moves around it by giving it different perspectives. And that's how Jesus will address his audience. 
by talking around it. His audience has already been directed. I don't know if you're paying attention at the end of Matthew chapter 21, but the religious leaders knew he was talking about them, and so he is here still. Uh, just because the chapter number changed didn't mean that the audience changed. So, verse 2 then, his parable b- begins. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So, if you were living in this kingdom, wouldn't this be the biggest social event imaginable? If you're living in this kingdom, inherently, what's happening is the son is being honored. So, if the king is honoring his son, he's honoring the heir apparent to the kingdom, Right? And if you're living there and you're invited, this is something that you should be expected to attend. It's important. And he intends to honor his son. This king intends to honor his son. So he's going to throw a feast, a feast of feasts, really, the best thing he can offer. He's going to spare no expense. It's going to be magnificent. And that's what he's inviting people to. So notice the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a a wedding feast. It's not compared to traffic on the 91 or going to the dentist to get a cavity filled. It's compared to a wedding feast, something exciting, something good, something wonderful, something you should want to be at. So he throws this for his son, and verse 3 says, And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. If you're the king, imagine your feelings at this point. If you've invited these people, you're, you're, you're spending a lot of money on this event, and then people choose not to come. I'll have you know that I was uh, pretty disappointed when, when some people that I invited to, to my own wedding uh, chose not to come. I was, I was disappointed, and I, 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 it was the most significant social event in my life. My wedding was my most significant social event, and, and some people uh, essentially declined the invitation, either by not showing up or, or by saying that they, they were too busy or they were too far away or they had other things going on. If you're the king, I'm sure that feeling is magnified significantly. And, uh, yeah, so, so he, he, he calls them, and, and it's not that they, they, they couldn't come. It's not that they were too busy. It's just that they would not come. They, they chose not to. Theologically speaking, uh, those who do not come, we would say don't come because they can't come. And while it is true that they can't come, it is also true that you can't do what you won't do. Every man ultimately chooses to do what he wants to do. Now, you may feel that there's some uh, alternative uh, options and maybe some pressures coinciding at the same time or, or maybe even have ulterior motives. But in the final analysis, we would all say that every man does what, what he wants to do. Um, my dad and I were on the phone recently, and uh, I was lamenting over someone, and this person's not here, but uh, I, I, was, I was lamenting the decision-making process of someone that we care about, and I, I cry out on the phone, and I say, she won't listen. She just won't listen. She says she wants to do such and such, but she, everything she does, all of her actions indicate the opposite. Everything she does says, I don't really want to do that. I don't value that. And it became increasingly obvious. And I said, it's so frustrating. My dad, uh, in his wisdom, um, who shared in my frustration, every bit of it, maybe, actually, no, definitely more. He said, yeah, there's something that Paul's saying. The very thing I want to do, I don't do, or something like that. He said, yeah, Romans 7, I know it. You know the words, don't you? I think you do. Paul, Paul laments that, that the very thing that he wants to do, he can't do. And 
in the final analysis, I would say that the person that my dad and I were talking about, she ultimately didn't want to do the things that she claimed she wanted to do. She said, yeah, that's important. Yeah, I'll, I'll stop doing that. I'll start doing that. But she didn't really. So what's my point? I, I thought maybe a little analogy would help here. Um, I value my health. I, I exercise pretty regularly, but I also like food. And, uh, and so these have a little bit of a juxtaposition sometimes. And um, so I, I like gummy bears, or in this case, gummy worms. And um, I bought these voluntarily. Um, I know they are bad for me. I know that there is no nutritional value in this. This is, uh, yeah, just sugar. And, uh, and it tastes great. They're soft, chewy, great. I like it. I want gummy worms more than I want to be healthy by not eating gummy worms in the final analysis. So I have want. I want to be healthy. But I also want gummy worms. And I want one more than the other. And these are unopened, but they, they will not remain that way. Um, in the final analysis, you can't do what you will not do. And no man's heart inclines toward God unless God calls him. So, yes, they wouldn't come and they couldn't come. Let's continue on in verse 4. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Who are these characters in the parable? At this point, I think it's important to address who the characters are in this parable. Uh, I think it's a pretty straightforward parable, and especially if you've understood the previous two, and Jesus has explained things as we've gone. Um, we know who the king is. Uh, the king is God the Father. So then his son would inherently be Jesus. I know, I know, it's rhetorical when you're Presbyterian. Um, and who does Jesus marry? Who is the bride of Christ? It's the church. It's the church. So it's us. So there's a little bit of, and I don't want to get us too confused here, but um, there's, there's two groups of su- servants here and. Uh, the first group of servants, they go out and they're largely ignored. Maybe some were treated worse. The first group of servants, commentaries agreed, and I think it's fairly straightforward, are the prophets, the prophets of old. Um, we're talking about everyone that announced the coming kingdom of God. Uh, Isaiah, he was sawn in half. Zechariah, he was, uh, he was stoned at the request of the people and then, and then left for dead. The point is that the, the two groups of servants, um, the first one, I think, was the old prophets. And I think the second prophets, if you, or the second group of people that was sent out, if you look at it, they're being sent out when the wedding is ready. So when is this wedding ready? I think the wedding is ready when Jesus comes. So when Jesus incarnate is here in the flesh, that's when the wedding is ready. And if that is when the wedding is ready, then the second group is the apostles, the, the disciples, the, the early church, you could say. And, uh, and what happened to those people? What happened to that second group? Well, we'll read about them in a second. But I also want to comment that we are also those same servants. If you know God, if you are going to this wedding banquet, then not only are you attending of the wedding banquet, and not only are you also the bride of Christ, but furthermore, you are also a servant of this God. This word servant, slave, and um, I, I don't mean to emphasize uh, the Greek very much, but, but this word is doulos, and... Uh, and I remember uh, the first time um, I saw my wife's uh, foot without a shoe on it, I saw that she had the word doulos written on her foot, and I pointed and I said, ha, you're a slave. 
And, uh, and, and she laughed, and um, she knew that I could read what it said in Greek, but that word servant and slave, she writes that on her foot because she understands her position appositionally to the king. She knows who she serves. So we are all three of these, but in this particular story, we're going to look at ourselves strictly as the attendees. Again, if you are a part of the church. So I'm going to read again from verse 2 just to regather these things, these, uh, these thoughts of mine. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So what pressing matter did these who paid no attention to the invitation have to get to? It says his farm, his business. Do these sound like urgent needs? You have to go milk the cows? You have to go check the stock market? These are urgent needs? This is why you can't come to the wedding? What? I think, I think we can relate to this. I think that we often find ourselves too busy. Uh, you, may have, uh, you may have found yourself praying every day this week, but if you didn't, then, then why did you not pray every day this week? Why did you not read the word every day this week? Why are you here this morning? Did you come to impress? Did you come to worship? Did you come because you have a responsibility and this is what you're supposed to do? Did you come because your parents made you? think that the reason why they didn't come is because they simply did not care. They didn't care enough to come. No matter what we look at, they ultimately didn't have to go milk those cows and, and check the stock market that badly. They simply didn't have a desire to come. And I think the reason they didn't want to come is not because they wouldn't enjoy the free food. It's because they don't want to honor the king or his son. I think this reason is as old as, as the Bible. Actually, older than that. It goes back to Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, you'll remember that Eve, when she was tempted in the garden by the serpent, what was she tempted with specifically? Eat it and you will be like God. In other words, Eve and, and, and Adam after, or very quickly after, Eve and Adam, they didn't want to honor the king who sits on the throne. They wanted to sit on the throne. They didn't want to honor the God who was already upon it. They wanted to sit upon it themselves. And so do we. I think it's still our motive today. I think that's why they didn't want to come to the wedding feast. Because they didn't want to honor the king. They want to be king. Perhaps you're someone who always do, does exactly what you're supposed to when you're told to the first time. I am not. Um, my parents are very consistent people. My mother's here. Uh, when I was going through school, I was expected to go to school every day. And you might be like, well, of course, we all are, Joel. We are all expected to go to school every day. Yeah, I missed one day. That was September 2nd, 1992, and I didn't miss another one. I didn't miss school. My church attendance was pretty similar because my parents are God-fearing and well-saved people. 
They love God, and they took me to church. And, uh, and so I went to church often. So I figured by the time I was 14, I would have had to have heard the Bible preached on, and we were at good Bible-believing churches. I would have had to hear the Bible preached on at least 700 times, minimum, probably more. So by the age of 14, when I still didn't have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, I had listened and rejected the invitation 700 times. Eight days after I turned 14 on September 10th in the year 2000, sitting in the back left area, kind of like where Thomas is, um, I, uh, I went forward during an altar call. I was the only one in a church of about 700, I think. And I received Christ for the first time. I accepted my invitation to the wedding. My point in saying that is that we have a very, very patient God. He sent out his servants. He sent them out again. He sent them out a third time. He repeatedly sends out servants to announce an invitation to this wedding feast. And I rejected it over and over and over again. I think many of you could probably relate. So we have this king who consistently sends out servants. And and if you are a servant, then he has instructed you also to go out and to share this good news. The harvest is ready. The workers are few. Go. Go and share this good news. Verse 6, the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. This is surely what happened to many of the early leaders of the church, isn't it? Stephen was stoned first. Peter... Peter was crucified upside down because he felt he was unworthy to die in the same manner as Lord had died. Andrew was scourged and then tied to a cross where he hung two days preaching the gospel to passerbys before he died. James was beheaded. Bartholomew was killed, either by crucifixion or, uh, or by being filleted alive with knives and then beheaded. Thomas was killed with a spear. Matthew was stabbed. James the Lesser was beaten, stoned, and clubbed. Thaddeus, Philip, and Simon the Zealot were all crucified. They left them bloodied, dead. They abused, they mistreated them. But they did that to the holiest man that ever lived. How then did the king respond to the attack on his messengers? Verse 7, the king was angry. Yeah, no kidding. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Most commentaries would say and. I agree with it that this is fulfilled by the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 A.D. That was their city, and he, he had it destroyed. God is the Lord of hosts, and the host here is an army, and he commands those armies. And it may have been a Roman legion that destroyed the city finally and tore apart the temple stone by stone. But it was God's doing. And I think it was because God had to get their attention. When we read Isaiah 61 this morning, you may remember uh, that Jesus, when he's quoting it in Luke chapter 4, when he says it, and he's saying it in his hometown, he says, um, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then he sits down. Uh, that, that verse continues, and the day of vengeance of our God. That's why we read it this morning. That's part of why we read it this morning. It also has to do with the garments and clothing. Uh, and the day of vengeance of our God. In other words, these two things go together. It's not just the, the year of the Lord's favor is separate from the day of vengeance. It is both and. 
They come together simultaneously. So the year of the Lord's favor is everything that has to do with Jesus and our atonement and all the beauty and wonder of who he is and what he is to us. Our salvation. Our invitation to the wedding. Our bridegroom. That, that is the year of the Lord's favor, but it also comes with a day of vengeance. And we will be held accountable to it. These come together, and, and there's a reason why the scriptures say today is the day of salvation. It's because these things come colliding quickly, and tomorrow is not guaranteed to any man, to no one. We can't presume upon his grace. Reading in verse 8, Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite. This word is call. Call to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So those invited were not worthy is quite the understatement, isn't it? Not only did they reject the invitation, but then they killed the messengers. They ignored it. They said they had better things to do. So these people who didn't want to come, they didn't not just want to come. They hate the king and all that he stands for. We remember that when God had sent out the prophets before, they were largely rejected. They were mistreated and abused. And the reason why is because sometimes it's easier to kill the messenger than it is to receive the message. Isn't it? It is. It's easier to kill the messenger than it is to receive the message. So the king sends out more servants. He will not have an empty party for his son. The king sends out messengers and servants, and they go out into the streets, and they find everyone they can. They find the unclean. They find the tax collectors and the lepers, even the lawyers. Um, and and they, they invite all of them in. They invite the good and the bad, the, the sweet grandmothers and, I don't know, the worst of the worst. They invite all of them in. They say, you're invited, you're invited, you're invited. Come in. Come into the feast. Come into the feast. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. God will find people to come to his party. I feel like this is where the story should end. Maybe a little ditty at the end that says something like, uh, and they all had a good time, and there was lots of dancing, and, and the sun was honored. Hooray. I think that's how the parable should end. Since it doesn't, and what comes next should feel like a little bit of a twist, a little bit of a surprise, since it was all about getting people to come to the wedding. Since what comes next feels like a twist, that's the focus point. That's where the parabola, the parable, focuses, is on wherever you find a twist in Scripture that you didn't expect, that's the focus. So verses 11 to 14. But when the king came in and took a look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So all of the wedding guests have come in, and they are reclining and enjoying themselves. But the king sees a man who is dressed without a wedding garment. And he says, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Now why should that surprise the king? He invited in beggars. He invited in lepers. He invited in the outcasts. It shouldn't be that surprising that someone comes in without a three-piece suit, should it? I mean, really, why would that surprise the king? His shock seems a little bit off, doesn't it? But we know why this is okay, in large part because we see the man's response. It was not that uncommon for a man to be able 
a rich king like this to host a wedding and offer uh, wedding garments to people as they came into the wedding. So he would offer them uh, something to wear that would be appropriate for the wedding. Uh, this is what the commentaries agreed on largely, and, um, and, and it makes the most sense, I think. You see, this man, he didn't say, oh, I, I just ran out of time. It was at home. I'll, I'll go run back and go get it real quick. He, he didn't say that. He didn't, he didn't say, hey, you know what? Uh, I, uh, I just thought that what I was wearing was good enough. I think I look pretty good. So what's the big deal? He didn't say, why are you being so fussy, king? Like, it's not that big a deal. I mean, you invited everybody. I'm, I'm okay. Like, uh, he didn't say any of that. He said nothing. His response was nothing. Did you see that? He was speechless. Romans 3.19 says that before the king... On the great day of judgment, every mouth will be stopped. Because by the time we've made it to that point, you'll have the good judgment not to try and explain yourself to the king anymore. That time has passed. He says nothing. You see, when he had walked into that castle, he had passed by an attendant who had been handing out wedding garments, and he kind of looked and went, nah, I'm good, and he kept on walking. Uh, if you go to a fancy restaurant and a tie is required to, to eat there, and the maitre d' offers you a tie and says, hey, sir, I need you to put this on in order to eat here, you can't be like, no, nah, I'm good, thanks. No, you either put on the tie or you leave. You do not get to choose otherwise. This man walked right past the attendant, ignored, and pressed on because he felt like what he had was good enough on his own. And then the king questions him, and his response was silence. You see, when the king asks you a question and you have nothing to say, there's nothing left. Uh, Augustine, he was thinking about, what are these garments? What are these wedding garments that the man had to put on? I mean, isn't it a little bit odd? What are these wedding garments that the man had to put on? Augustine, St. Augustine you know, of Hippo, that one. Uh, I don't know another one. But he said, these have to be the righteousness of Christ. These garments that they're putting on have to be the righteousness of Christ in this analogy. Uh, some people have said, well, it's not obvious from the text. You can't get that for sure. James Montgomery Boyce, he was a pastor at uh, 10th Avenue Pres in uh, Philadelphia, and he was a, he was a reformed theologian and uh, a great pastor. Past, I think in the year 2000. Um, he, uh, he says in his commentary on this, these, uh, these clothes are none other than the righteousness of Christ, comma, of course. Uh, the righteousness of Christ, because our righteousness is like filthy rags, Isaiah says. Our best stuff stinks. We don't have anything good enough to wear into this kingdom. And the only way to enter the kingdom of heaven is if we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Where do we get this idea about clothing being a metaphor? We read one of those passages this morning, Isaiah 61. I'll read a few more. Job 29, 14. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. Psalm 132, 9. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. Isaiah eleven five. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Romans thirteen fourteen. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians three twenty seven. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. 
Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And that put on verb there is used exclusively for clothing. I think that's enough verses. I think you get the point. You have to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And if you come by any other means, it's not good enough. If we depend on our own clothing, our own righteous clothing to get us in to this wedding, it will not be enough. And we will suffer the same fate that this man did. And what was that fate? To be cast in outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you reject the righteousness of Christ, if you depend on your own goodness, you will be cast into the same darkness. Heaven is not without standards. In fact, the standard is perfection. Entrance is fee, but change is required. The change is a full change of clothes, from the rags of sin to the robes of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, in order for the king to look at me and see me as acceptable to be at that wedding feast, he has to see the clothes that his son has given me. That's the only way. That's the standard of perfection. That's what we're called to. Even this morning, we, uh, we read from the Heidelberger, uh, the Heidelberg Confession of Faith, um, the Heidelberger, anyways. Uh, question 30. Do those who look for their salvation and security in saints, in themselves, or elsewhere, really believe in the only Savior? No, although they boast of being his, by their deeds they deny the only true Savior and deliverer, Jesus. Either Jesus is not a perfect Savior, or those who in true faith accept this Savior have in him all the need for their salvation. We answered it this morning. You're either in with him or you're not. If you're depending on yourself, you're not. And you will also go into outer darkness. The reality is that sin must be dealt with here. And I, I want to address this for a second. I, I think some of us might read this and think, the king is too harsh. He could have just said, hey, you need to go out to the attendant. You need to do what the major D told you. You need to put on the tie. You need to put on the wedding clothes. That would, that would be much more gracious. The problem is that the king has already been ignored. He sent out his servants. He sent out his message. He has proclaimed that good news over and over again. He sent out the invitations. And God is loving and merciful, but he is also holy. And his holiness requires anyone who dwells in his presence to also be holy. And since we are not, we must be made holy. So in this metaphor that comes through us to us through the parable, it has to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It can't be anything else. There comes a point where every man has to be judged. There's a point that each man die once and then comes judgment, right? So at some point, it has to be that way. The invitation, the clothes, everything was already paid for for us. All we have to do is receive it. If you will not accept the free gifts of God, God will have to deal with you in another way. Sin has to be dealt with. Isaac Watts, he, uh, he was an English hymn writer. He wrote this in regard to this parable. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter Walder's room? 
when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. This parable concludes in verse 14. Many are called, but few are chosen. Who is the subject doing the choosing here? Who does the choosing? I think you know who the subject is. It has to be God. It has to be the king. God does the choosing. This does not deny human responsibility, but in finality, God does do the choosing. He chooses his people to life. God saves sinners. It goes back to that whole, you can't do what you won't do, and you won't do what you can't do. Do you wish you were invited to this wedding feast? The great news is that we are. We were grafted in. We, primarily being Gentiles in this room, we... We were grafted in. No one is not invited. At one point, this, this call was given to Israel, and Israel was supposed to be this light, and, and it was supposed to share the goodness of God. But they rejected the message, and they didn't share, and they became more and more exclusive. But there is this tendency in the Word of God and in the New Testament to go from exclusive to inclusive. It's actually one of the reasons, you know, even why we baptize uh, our inference is, is that, that belief from exclusive to inclusive. The good news is that you're invited. This plan B, it may seem, to invite in all those people that were outcasts, these, these sinners, lepers, the good and the bad as the world perceives us, it may have seemed like a plan B, but it was always plan A. God always had every intention of bringing us in. That was his plan to bring a people unto himself. Romans 10.13 assures us that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not might be saved, not if you do enough good works afterwards, not if, not if you can prove yourself worthy, will be saved. Our, all parables have a single point, a single focus point, and this is it. We moved along the curve to view it, but the, the point is, who is this parable addressed to? It was given away at the end of chapter 21, if you caught it. The religious leaders knew it was dressed towards them. They are the focus point. So who are they in the parable? They're the ones who've been sitting there, memorizing all the rules, understanding the regulations, understanding all of the word of God mentally, and never actually putting him on the throne. That's who it was addressed to. It was addressed to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. Those words, those people, the religious leaders. Since they don't exist anymore, obviously this parable is useless, correct? Hardly. Hardly. Hardly at all. I would think that we know who this is. This is any one of us who sits in church week after week, day after day, uh, claiming to be a Christian and refuses to honor the king. Check your own heart. Uh, I've spent a few weeks looking at this passage, and I, I've checked mine, and I see how often I refuse to put my king on the throne, and I put my own desires above his. My selfishness, my pride, I place above him. There is forgiveness and repentance, and hopefully you were assured of that this morning when you came in. 
So who is this parable directed towards? I think, it's a, I think it's directed towards those of us who come to church every week, and especially those of us who refuse to go to the wedding. I don't want to assume that all of you are saved. I don't want to assume that any of you aren't, and I certainly won't point fingers. I'll leave that to you. But this is where the story, the story should surprise us, because I think it should end at verse 10 with a little addendum, and the peasants rejoiced. <laughs> um, that's how I feel like it should end, and, and it doesn't. And these self-righteous people, I think they're representative people who, who sat there and had a zeal for knowledge, and maybe they even had, they've read three different systematic theologies, and, and they have memorized large portions of Scripture. They memorized all the rules, and they don't know God. Perhaps you still want to be God rather than worship the only true God. We all go to church every Sunday. I recognize most of your faces. I could call you out by name for the most part. Um, I've shared a meal with most of you as well. And, and so you might be saying, well, you know me, and, and I know you, and, and we're both saved. I would say to you, uh, for the most part, I think that, uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. I think most people in this room are going to be at that wedding banquet. But to think that people fake their way in church and don't really come in is preposterous. The reason the book of Jude is you know, short, it's 25 verses, you know, it's one chapter. The reason it was written, according to verse 4, is uh, certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. People go to church without knowing Christ. That's a fact. The visible church, invisible church, that's a real thing. The weeds and the wheat will grow together in the church until Christ comes to separate them, to separate the wheat from the, from the chaff. Until we see ourselves as needing Christ's righteousness, we will stand guilty. You're invited to the wedding. Attend. And if you are attending, if you're planning on being there, if you know you're attending that wedding, then invite others to come with you because that's your role still. How then should we come clothed in the righteousness of Christ, dependent on Christ for your wedding garments? Oh, oh, guests of the feast, do not find yourselves occupied with other things. Don't find yourself so busy that you neglect his word, that you neglect to pray, that you neglect to worship the one true king, as we're called to do. We will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, so that when God looks at me, he will see his son, and I will not be rejected. God can take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He cannot change your heart. It is still only God who makes dead men live. The willing, the unwilling, he makes willing. Those who do not care, take care. What have you done with your wedding invitation? Amen. Let's pray. Father and King, I thank you for sending out messengers that we might be given opportunity to hear. Thank you for inviting us to the wedding feast that we are completely unworthy to attend. We give thanks that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ rather than dependent on our own righteousness, which is like filthy rags. God, I pray that you would replace any hearts of stone that remain in this room with hearts of flesh and that you would do what only you, the triune God, can do. Holy Spirit, dwell in us richly. We pray all this in the name of the Son, Jesus. Amen, 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 Jesus.